Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Lisa Johnson in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? With the pandemic, this Thanksgiving is a little weird. Farmers have even been growing smaller turkeys, anticipating smaller and fewer family gatherings. Still, the harvest has us thinking about food and checking in with some who are trying to ditch the turkey altogether. If we get lots of mushrooms, the highlight will really be the mushrooms. Today we're looking at the climate argument for eating less meat. Most Canadians are meat eaters, including me. When Dalhousie researchers surveyed a thousand people across the country, about half said they consider eating meat one of the great pleasures in life. Some even called it a right. But many are trying to cut back, and the climate science is behind them. If everybody in the world would eat like a Canadian, we calculated then that you would need approximately five Earths. So that is really shocking. So there is no way there would be not runaway climate change if everybody in the world would eat like Canadians. So what is the appetite for change? Today, we're sinking our teeth into eating for the planet. Among omnivores, it's arguably one thing to go meatless on a Monday and another entirely for a special occasion. The center of a feast tends to be, as Dr. Seuss put it, a roast beast. But that doesn't have to be the case. Our Rachel Sanders met up with some people in Vancouver taking a different approach this Thanksgiving. Um, oh, the chickadee. The chickadees are just feasting right now on the sunflowers. Danelda Rose walks around the rooftop garden in pink and blue floral crocs. She's my tour guide on this sunny afternoon. The vegetable beds are lush and she's proud of her harvest. And along here we've grown quite a few green peppers. Um, this is a red kale. What in these greenhouses went into the dishes that you made today? Some of the tomatoes, uh, the green pepper, the purslane and the cucumber and the cucumelons. I think that's all. I was going to get celery and then I forgot. So. <laughs> Donelda's neighbors probably won't mind. They live together in this co-housing complex. 31 units full of people who share the space, the upkeep, and on occasion, meals. Today, the menu's all about plant-based eating. It's all to help Fabrice Rettier, and by the sounds of it, he could really use it. My nickname was Sergeant Sausage, because I would bring all these dried sausage, and, uh, and then I, we had a whole bunch of parties with a big meat uh, feast, things like that. Fabrice is from France. Meat and cheese were a huge part of his diet growing up. He's got a real Vancouver vibe now. When I meet him, he's wearing shorts and flip-flops and standing in front of a barbecue. He says these days he's been thinking more about climate change. So now I'm trying to... Uh, make an effort to reduce uh, our impact so on, the, on food and on everything, not using our car as well, at least not in the city. So we've, I think, cut beef and lamb quite a bit. It's not easy for a meat lover to switch to an all-veggie diet. Fabrice says it's even harder with a special meal like Thanksgiving. Well, the centerpiece, you can cook many things that are really nice meatless, but it feels you miss this uh, 
this thing in the middle that you bring and that everything revolves around that piece. When I have big party, often I go and I get... I like the extravagant as well. So a huge ham or a, or a turkey with the duck and all that inside. Luckily, Fabrice has lots of help. His neighbors have made a few vegetarian dishes to inspire him. This is roasted root vegetables. This is from our cooking vegan book. And then we've got pesto the besto. That's from Basil grown up here on the roof. That's Vasanto Molina. She's a dietitian, and she's actually written quite a few books, most of them about plant-based eating. At 78, she's been eating meatless for 40 years now. But it was a long journey. When I started, I would like to have Chateaubriand, and I had really good, you know, beef fondue and that kind of thing when I was a young mom. Then gradually I became vegetarian, went to India, learned how well they could cook there, lived there for four years, then became more and more plant-based. So I've been at every place on the spectrum. Fasanto's face lights up when she talks about food. She's excited to see more people interested in plant-based eating lately. It's mostly people that are just trying it out, you know, eating it on Thursdays trying to see what you can do when your father-in-law comes over and, you know, will he be willing to do this, you know. And, and I think we're, we're all just adventuring into this. Hey, Jones, what do you like to eat from Vicento's garden? Kale! <laughs> Sarah Jane Crossan and her family live here too. I was vegetarian for a, a good long time in my life, and then as sort of more humanely raised meats became more available, and also when I got pregnant, <laughs> I, um, I reintroduced them, but I still try to maintain some of the great things about vegetarian eating. Yeah, so we do a mix. So lots of meals we don't have meat, some we do, um, and I feel good about that in terms of, you know, leaving the planet in good shape for my kids. Sarah Jane is cooking meatless this Thanksgiving, too, maybe a nut and mushroom loaf. She advises Fabrice on his approach. Replacing meat and using, like, fake meats is really uh, a great option, especially with kids, too. But also, like, remembering to think outside the box and just not trying to recreate the traditional meal, but kind of going with the fall theme just to really enjoy those flavors. And then, yeah, like, visually... Like the beet salad that was there at the table, like the visual impact of that just looks so nice with all the colors and stuff, so that always makes things feel more special to me too. Fabrice looks thoughtful as he samples his neighbor's dishes and his own barbecue experiments as well. The mushroom gravy, yeah, it's really good. These uh, Brussels sprout are a little bit spicy. Mm-hmm. So then the uh, cauliflower is made two different ways, two different sauces on the barbecue. So this one is quite good. He thinks he's found the main dish for his family's first meatless Thanksgiving. And he says he will cook a few of his neighbors' recipes as well. Actually, the cauliflower is good, both ways. So I think that's a good strategy, uh, cauliflower-based as a replacement direct for meat. It doesn't replace in terms of protein, but in terms of taste, I think it it will work. I think I found my centerpiece for um, Thanksgiving, so I'm happy uh, about that. How is it? Good. Very good. Yummy. (laughs) In Vancouver, I'm Rachel Sanders. But when you're tackling a global problem like climate change, how much does each plate of food we choose even matter? Marco Springman says it adds up to quite a lot. He's a senior researcher with the Oxford Martin Program on the Future of Food, 
and part of a global group of scientists who came up with the planetary health diet, a way of eating that's good for the climate and ourselves. Hello. Hello there. So how much of a difference do our food choices, especially around meat, matter when it comes to climate change? It really makes a huge difference. At the moment, the food system is responsible for more than a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And the majority of uh, those emissions are due to animal source foods, in particular beef and dairy. So without dietary changes towards more plant-based diet, diets, we really have a very limited chance of uh, avoiding dangerous levels of climate change. How does that compare to other uh, environmental efforts people might be making in their diets? Like we, we talk a lot here about buying local. Is it really better to have beans that come from another continent compared to, say, local meat? According to all what we know, not really. Food, uh, transport-related emissions only make up about 5% of overall food-related emissions. So that means eating local doesn't matter for your overall greenhouse gas balance. It might matter for the local economy, but that's a different issue, I suppose. So what matters really is what kinds of foods you're eating, specifically whether you're eating beef and dairy compared to plant-based protein sources like beans, legumes, and so on. So can you break down for me the planetary health diet that you've been involved with a team of others in, in coming up with? If I'm eating according to that, what should my plate look like? We try to look at the current evidence of what is a healthy diet, but also a sustainable diet. And one shouldn't have more than one serving of red meat per week. And red meat includes beef, lamb, and pork, not more than two servings of poultry per week, not more than two servings of fish per week, uh, not more than one serving of dairy per day. And that leaves basically two days of the week uh, that you should try to be either vegetarian or vegan. Beef in particular, you flag as having an outsized impact on emissions and red meat would be that category with just, just one time a week. Why, why is that? There are several factors that contribute to the high greenhouse gas emissions of beef. The number one uh, factor that most people would have heard of are the high methane emissions that cows emit. Those are generated basically in the cow's stomachs when they digest food and they sporadically burp up uh, those methane emissions. So those are responsible for over 40% of uh, livestock-related footprint. And another 40% is due to the feed. Um, a normal cow needs to eat between 10 to 50 kilograms of feed uh, in order to put on one kilogram of body weight. So they are very inefficient converters of feed. And to produce that feed, no matter whether it's just grass or some kind of grain mix, that feed will need to be fertilized to some degree. And whilst fertilizing, uh, another potent greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide is created. And then you have a third greenhouse gas that most people have known, uh, heard about, uh, that's carbon dioxide emissions, and that is related to land use changes. For example, if animal feed uh, like soybeans are produced in the Amazon and some uh, forests are knocked down for that. So we were talking about the methane from cows and the burps, but in um, pop culture, we often hear about car cow farts as well. Uh, is that the same thing or is it just um, a popular misconception? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how that idea of uh, the farts came up. Uh, of course, they fart as well, and uh, they also expel methane due to that. But uh, it seems that the number one thing of how they expel most of the methane is by burping it up. But no matter how, uh, <laughs> burps or farts, uh, uh, cows are very high methane emitters. So we asked beef producers here in Canada about their emissions, and they say that uh, per kilogram, they're much lower than the global average. And they called this analysis in the planetary health diet oversimplified, looking at uh, all different types of beef production. And also they called it extreme. What's, what's your reaction to that? 
Well, actually, in that analysis that led to the Planetary Health Diet, we looked at country-specific environmental footprints. So we do have in our database Canadian uh, uh, footprints for beef. And those are indeed half of uh, the global average, but that doesn't make them low. They are still 50 to 100 times higher than uh, those of uh, plant-based protein sources like beans or lentils. So the fact that Canadian beef production is a bit more efficient than the global average doesn't really mean anything in terms of the relative difference between uh, animal source foods and plant-based foods. And I have to ask, because it's this week in Canada, it's Thanksgiving, uh, the traditional centerpiece of that meal is turkey. How does poultry compare um, in, in these emissions profiles? Well, the relative ranking is approximately like this. So at the very top, you have beef and lamb. Then 10 times less of an emissions footprint are other meats like pork and poultry. And then again, 10 times less than that are plant-based protein sources like beans and lentils. So less than beef, more than plants. You know, I want to be honest with you. I have heard some of these arguments before and made efforts myself to eat less meat and more plants, you know, for environmental reasons. But I also find, you know, I'm trying to balance what my kids will eat and what I'm used to cooking and health and convenience and all these different things. It is easy for those issues to feel far away. And I wonder what you think could be done to encourage people to make a lasting change amid all the other food decisions they have to make. Well, I think it's important to keep two things in mind. For one, uh, the impacts of climate change are already showing up every summer, for example, when you look at sort of the new drought seasons that we get every year and the wildfire seasons. I mean, granted, not everything is due to climate change, but a lot of the environmental disruptions we see already year on year are due to that. So environmental issues feature much higher on the global consciousness and the consciousness in high-income countries, I would say. But secondly, what is also uh, important to keep in mind is that unhealthy diets, uh, and those are diets in most high-income countries, are the number one factor uh, behind premature mortality. So in Canada, for example, roughly 40,000 deaths occur that are preventable if people had healthier diets. Right? That's four times more than uh, the recent COVID crisis has so far caused in Canada. But most people don't have that on the radar. But if they would transition from their current fairly unhealthy and unsustainable diets to predominantly plant-based diets, then they could basically uh, uh, prevent those high number of deaths and personally also uh, most of the time be healthier. People struggle with that, even if it's completely for their their own goals. Um, how optimistic are you that that this kind of change can happen? Well, we know that it won't properly happen if we leave it up to the individual uh, to make that change. So we usually think that what influences dietary decisions is the whole food environment. And the food environment pushes you to, for example, overeat, not exercise enough, eat the wrong stuff. So it's really those changes in the food environment that are essential. Do you think anything could be done on a policy level that would help encourage people to make those kind of choices? Absolutely. Uh, What we usually call for is really a combined policy package. Um, In addition to a reform of dietary guidelines, we need fiscal incentives, for example, that price in the climate change damage costs or the high health costs of unhealthy and unsustainable foods, which essentially would make beef and dairy more expensive. 
Um, but we also call for a change in school and workplace canteens and the reform of agricultural subsidies that in very many countries are benefiting, sometimes indirectly, the production of unhealthy and unsustainable foods. So when you talk about pricing in those emissions, do you mean like a tax on meat, the way that we have taxes on carbon or some places have taxes on sugar? Yeah, you can think about it that way. So at the moment, the consumer just doesn't see those high environmental or health impacts that a food product has. Uh, and the thinking is that the consumer can make up his or her own mind when they see the full price tag, but not if some prices or some costs are hidden from sight, which is at the moment the case. You know, we already see some pushback, though, to the idea even just of cutting back on meat. Like I think of some of the rhetoric in the U.S. where Republicans are saying that Democrats are, are going to take away your trucks and your burgers. And that rhetoric might be a, a bit much. But I could imagine people listening to this and saying, hey, what I'm eating and what I'm feeding my family, that is a, a personal choice. Like stay out of it. What do you say to that? Well, two things. So for one, if you stay out of it, you leave the field to private companies that usually make a profit or, uh, by selling fairly unhealthy, cheap and unsustainable foods to you. So uh, staying out of regulating the food environment is really not an option in that case. Uh, and then secondly, if you use fiscal incentives like changing the relative price of foods, then you don't take anything away. You just make uh, you just adjust the price and give a signal to the consumer what uh, can be consumed without a problem and what might be uh, uh, very high in emissions. Uh, plus, you have some tax revenues that you can use to actually help uh, household, low-income households or also help farmers uh, diversify what they grow. So you have a lot to play for uh, if you use those fiscal incentives prudently. And on a personal level, how have these issues shaped how you eat? Well, I have a fairly plant-based diet and um, I'm, I think in... In, uh, in some ways, um, I find it easy if you um, if you cook yourself, which I do very often. Um, and it's nice to know what, that what you eat is uh, relatively healthy and relatively sustainable. So I can only recommend to people to try that out. When you uh, are trying to have a feast or a special time with loved ones, um, what would be the plant-based uh, delight that you offer up? Oh, it can be anything. Most of the time I have some form of uh, some beans or lentils uh, uh, with dishes. And those can look very different, right? You can make pesto with those, for example, which, which is a nice thing, I think. And the number one thing I think to keep in mind if you cook up a feast is be colorful because those different colored vegetables have usually different uh, nutrients. Uh, so you have a very balanced meal if you mix it up uh, with color and make sure you uh, have some legumes and nuts and, and whole grains in there. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Marco Springman is a senior researcher with the Oxford Martin Program on the Future of Food. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. 
are lots of ways to get protein from plants without processed meat substitutes like veggie burgers and soy dogs. But that market category does tell an interesting story. It's still tiny compared to meat, but sales are growing much faster. A government report last year showed retail sales of plant-based meat substitutes up 8 to 10 percent per year and forecast to keep growing. Fast food chains and restaurants now feature plant-based burger substitutes that purport to taste like the original. The latest arrival in Canada comes from Impossible Foods in California. It just started selling burgers here last month. Oh, it's been awesome. Um, the response from consumers, the response from chefs has been extremely positive, and, and we're already expanding very rapidly in Canada. CEO Pat Brown got into the business because of climate change and says his goal is eliminating animal-based foods by 2035. This is the only way, the only practical way to do something that we absolutely have to do. Put on the brakes and turn back the clock on climate change. And by 2035, well, if we don't do it by 2035, we're screwed. That's why it's 2035. And we can do that by replacing animals in the food system. He doesn't eat products from animals, but his market is people who do and trying to win them on taste. In the food system, animals are just a technology. And the job that they do is they transform plant biomass into this particular kind of food that's defined by a a characteristic flavor, aroma, texture, juiciness. Virtually 100% of meat lovers, if you actually dig into it, um, don't like the fact that their meat comes from the cadaver of an animal with all that that implies. They just accept that as sort of a necessary evil because the pleasure they get from the food um, outweighs that, that negative. The animals are not part of the value proposition. They're just the means that we have always used to produce these foods that, that uh, the world loves. It's a pretty Silicon Valley way of thinking. Animals as a technology that turn plants into a thing people eat called meat. The trick then is, what makes meat taste meaty? The job here is to produce a food that meets those specifications. And for us to succeed, it has to actually do a better job. And that's a scientific and technical challenge, but a very uh, solvable one. The solution Impossible Foods is going with is a molecule called heme. You might recognize that name as part of hemoglobin, that iron-containing protein that carries oxygen around our blood and is common in animal tissue. What wasn't known is that heme is also the catalyst that catalyzes the chemical reactions that, for example, produce the bloody flavor of raw meat, but really more impressively, when you cook meat and you get this explosion of flavor and aroma and the sort of complete transformation of the flavor and aroma profile of the meat, that's all because of heme. So that was a very important discovery for us um, because it, it really crystallized a big part of the um, whole flavor chemistry into something that was simple and solvable. Heme exists in plants, but is less common, so they figured out a way to make lots of it, extracting a protein from soybeans and genetically engineering yeast to make it. Brown still calls the result meat, a claim that beef producers unsurprisingly oppose, though he admits their current product does have a stumbling block. Real beef is still cheaper. The biggest barrier is price right now, but that's coming down fast. My, my feeling is when we are competing on price... Um, that's going to be a tipping point. You know, when, when the first digital camera was introduced, it was terrible. 
it, it cost more than $1,000. It could only take eight pictures. And the pictures were 300,000 pixels. That's like one millimeter of your phone screen or something like that. Okay. Less than 10 years later, the film industry was dead. That's Pat Brown, CEO of Impossible Foods, which just launched their plant-based burger in Canada. So technology might give people who like meat new options that don't rely on animals. But it isn't always affordable and certainly isn't the only fix. Angela Lee is an assistant professor at Ryerson University's Faculty of Law. She specializes in food and agriculture law. Hello. Hi there. So let's start with the Canada Food Guide that took a step towards plant-based eating last year with you know, fruit, vegetables, whole grains, getting a bigger portion of the plate. How big of a change was that? This was quite a substantial departure, actually, from the previous food guide that many of us of a certain generation grew up seeing with the rainbow approach and various different food groups of which dairy played a relatively prominent part in the previous food guide. And the new food guide, it emphasizes fruits and vegetables to a much greater extent. It emphasizes whole grain foods. And then it also stresses that people should be ingesting protein foods from a variety of sources. So not just animal-based proteins, but it also actively encourages people to choose protein foods that come from plants more often. And then it eliminates the category of dairy altogether. Yeah, that does sound like a big change from sort of the images I remember being up even on like school walls as a kid. Right, right, right. Do we have any idea how successful it's been in encouraging people to move in those directions? So I think that there are two different ways to look at it. So on one hand, it encourages people to think about food a little bit more holistically and less formulaically in a way. And then there have also been concerns raised with the food guide. So affordability is a major barrier for many people, although I'm sure a lot of us would love to eat a diet that is comprised of a significant proportion of organic fruits and vegetables. That's just not practical for people who are working multiple jobs, who are raising children, who have many different competing demands on their time. It's not necessarily feasible to be cooking homemade meals from scratch for three meals out of the day. So there are a number of different concerns that people have to balance that affect differently situated groups. It's interesting pointing out the cost. I remember seeing a study that saying that um, sort of the the foods that were best for our health and our planet were often like that mix on a plate um, could in some cases be like the most expensive version uh, versus uh, some of the things that are more readily available and, and come come at a lower price if you're getting, say, drive through window food. Yes, that's right. But I also want to kind of disabuse anyone of the notion that a plant-based diet, a vegetarian or vegan diet is one that is comprised of expensive processed specialty products. I think that there there is this misconception out there that it's veganism is a diet that's only for wealthy elites. And that's certainly not the case. There are many many people around the world who subsist on a plant-based diet and indeed the humble dish of rice and beans, which there's some version of it in many different cultures, is a a vegetarian and vegan dish in in a lot of occasions. So there are ways to eat a healthy, plant-based, nutritious diet that is affordable, but uh, it's, it's certainly something that can be challenging when you live in remote communities, for example, uh, when you don't have access to the same types of 
fresh products that other people do. So there are, there are a lot of different factors that need to be taken into account. I'm, I'm mindful of the many Canadian farmers that are producing meat products, producing dairy products. What kind of reaction were there from those industries to the those changes that you outlined? Right. So there was a significant degree of pushback, I would say, that there was this move away from recommending those types of products in the national dietary guidelines. But overall, I would say that if we are thinking about the future of the planet, if we are thinking about trying to emphasize health and nutrition and sustainability and also more just labor practices and social practices, I, I think that it's a, a positive development um, to, to encourage consumption of more plant-based products as opposed to giving such a prominence to animal-based foods. And Canada is also a big producer of alternative protein or plant-based protein sources like legumes and pulses. How mainstream is that? Yes, that's an excellent point. So Canada is a world leader in the production of pulses. And in this way, it does stand to greatly benefit from the growing demands for plant-based protein around the world. But I am also a little bit concerned or wary about this push for increasing production and increasing export. Because while certainly we, we do want to encourage consumption of these types of products, there can also be damaging impacts to the environment if we're just constantly fixated on economic growth and intensifying production, especially for export markets. We talked about the Canadian Food Guide as, as one of the policies that could be encouraging um, more plant-based consumption here in Canada. What other policies could help? Right. So again, last year, in addition to the rollout of the new food guide, there was quite a flurry of activity at the national level in terms of food law and policy, which is really encouraging. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what other kinds of steps are taken in the future to make these goals a reality. Do you see a role also for policy in shifting how uh, meat is produced. We talked to beef producers who said they've worked to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in their industry by 15% over the last 30 years and are trying to make more improvements. Uh, is there a role for policy in trying to urge that along as well? Yes, absolutely. So one of the major criticisms of industrial agriculture and food policy as it currently stands is the existence of distorting subsidies in the agriculture industry, especially those supporting large-scale industrial animal agriculture. And so these subsidies have essentially made it that, such that the price of animal products is artificially cheap and it doesn't accurately reflect all of the environmental externalities as they're referred to and the full cost to the environment to society and to obviously the animals in, in creating these kinds of products for the market. And so I think that that is a, a real area for further improvement. I'm, I'm not an economist. This isn't necessarily my area of expertise, but I certainly think that that is a, an area of emphasis that deserves more attention from a policy perspective. You talked about subsidies artificially reducing the cost of animal products. Is the thinking then that if consumers can have the choice to see the true costs of what they buy, like what's better for climate and, and what's cheaper, then that will influence the decisions that they're making uh, when they buy their own groceries? Yes, I think that if the true cost, including the true environmental and social and animal welfare related costs, 
of animal products was really embedded into the price that people had to pay, it would change people's behavior. And certainly we're seeing now that the price of fruits and vegetables has sort of steadily increased over the past few years and people's grocery bills are getting more and more expensive year after year. And yet the price of animal products has not necessarily fluctuated to the same extent. And part of this can certainly be attributed to those distorting subsidies. What about um, taxes? Like we've seen taxes on sugary drinks, you know, brought in from a sort of a health lens. Could you imagine a tax on foods like meat or dairy for, for climate concerns? Yes. So that has been an argument that several scholars have raised. There is a body of literature dealing with so-called sin taxes and taxes on the types of foods that are the most environmentally damaging of which animal products are. In terms of economic instruments, it has been shown to be effective. Although I'm thinking about, you know, the regions that uh, meat and dairy industries are are really big in. And could you really imagine a, a meat tax happening in Canada? Yes, it's a good question. And you put your finger on another important factor here, which is that the types of production practices that are happening in Alberta with respect to food and agriculture are very different than those in Atlantic Canada, which are very different than those in Ontario and so on. So there is no real one size fits all strategy that's going to be equally effective in all places. So one of the really interesting aspects of food law and policy is this are these considerations about which level of government is the most fit for purpose. And there has been much more activity in the municipal sphere around food law initiatives and policies to to try to improve food security, to, to try to improve access to healthy, nutritious, affordable food and so on. And so I, I think that it is imperative that we think about these things in a context specific way and understand and accept that what is successful in one area might not necessarily be successful in another. So there is a need for some degree of experimentation and trial and error and sort of comparing results and comparing notes in order to to make meaningful progress. What role do you think technology could play in in all of this and becoming more sustainable in the foods we, we produce and eat? Right. So this has been a major area of focus for me in my own research. And I would say that there is right now a real sort of excitement and enthusiasm about the role of technology in changing our food practices and in helping us to sort of circumvent some of the most damaging aspects of industrial agriculture and in particular industrial animal agriculture as it currently stands. For my own part, I'm a little bit cautious or hesitant about the promissory discourse that is commonly used in relation to new food innovations. I would argue that new food innovations are not a panacea. So increasing production and increasing efficiency has not been enough to address global hunger. And the rates of global hunger have actually been increasing in recent years after a period of steep decline. And this is ultimately because 
problems of global hunger are fundamentally distributional in nature. So it's much more about political and social and economic factors rather than being about bare supply and demand. And I think that similar problems exist with respect to new food innovations in the sense that they don't necessarily go to the roots of the issue. So they're posing as a win-win solution in many ways, but they don't really disrupt or change some of the fundamental roots of the problem when it comes to food, many of which just go back to this relentless commoditization and commercialization of food and the the way that food has become tied up in this kind of capitalist enterprise. So I'm so, not entirely convinced that food technologies are, are an entirely appropriate and opposite solutions to many of the problems that have been identified with the food system. I do think that there is a role that they can play, but I, I'm just a little bit cautious about presenting them as kind of the be-all and end-all or, or a silver bullet. What do you think is at stake if we don't change and adapt more than we already have in these questions of food and sustainability? Right. So... I mean, for me, my interest in food really stemmed from my interest in environmentalism and sustainability. And the really interesting thing about food is that it affects everyone. It's relevant to everyone. And it's something that is part of our daily lives. It's something that affects all of us in very tangible and material ways. And it's simultaneously a very public and a very private area. So the food choices that we make in the aggregate have the potential to have a tremendous impact, both positive and negative. And yet we have this idea that you have the right to eat whatever you want, um, whether that causes harm to your own personal health, whether the food choices you make are damaging to the environment. I think for some people, it is a, a little bit of a leap to start to think about food and the dietary choices that you make as impacting more than just yourself, but also your community and the world more broadly. Um, and increasingly, we're seeing really cogent, persuasive evidence that shows that even a modest reduction in the consumption of animal-based foods could go a long way towards mitigating greenhouse gas emissions and climate change impact. So I I think that there there are a lot of things that individual consumers can do to to try to make changes in their own personal lives, but this certainly shouldn't detract from coordinated efforts at political action and and trying to create changes on the production end and trying to create much more broad-ranging structural transformations as well. So I am personally quite alarmed about the state of the environment and about the state of climate change. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us to try to do what we can, even if it means making small sacrifices. And I also don't necessarily think that adopting a plant-based diet has to be something that we think of in terms of deprivation or as martyrdom. I think that it's also just an opportunity to think more relationally about food and the land from which it comes and the ways in which we try to show concern and care for, for other people and for, for the world at large. I do have to ask, I know you, uh, you don't eat meat. You've been vegan for some time, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. 
So I, I do. And I'm, I'm curious about the transition that you made and, and whether any of it was a, a challenge for you or, or what parts were easy. Right. So I think a lot of this turns on what you are accustomed to eating, what you grew up eating. And then, like I was alluding to earlier, various factors relating to culture and class and income and so on. So for me, I grew up in a a relatively low income family. And so meat was not something that we consumed on a regular basis for for reasons of cost alone. Um, And Furthermore, I grew up in a household where dairy was just not really a part of our diet. It just wasn't really part of our routine. And so for me, it was less of it was less of a significant shift to to eliminate those foods from my diet altogether. And I certainly do recognize that people are differently situated in this respect. So even though I personally am vegan, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I am an advocate for universal vegetarianism or veganism. I, I do recognize that to borrow a principle from international environmental law, we have common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities when it comes to our individual approaches to our diets. So like I was saying earlier, I think that if everyone just was a little bit more mindful about the choices that they made, it would make a big difference. And even if it just means, you know, going meatless Mondays or uh, trying to reduce food packaging in your household or trying to shop local um, more often than not, there are a, a lot of different ways in which choices that we make relative to food and our diets can, can have a, a really positive impact. Angela Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Angela Lee is an assistant professor at Ryerson University's Faculty of Law. That does it for us this week. You can always follow us on Twitter at CBC What on Earth. If you haven't given us a review, please do and tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producers Rachel Sanders and Andrew Kuryata, and producer Molly Siegel. Our technician is Mateus Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.